Kieran Reith. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Instactinus. And this time we are back and we are going to finish off our reading of Neither Vertical Nor Horizontal. Um, you know, if you didn't get the first two episodes in the series, go back there and start from there and then catch up with us here. Um, yeah, I I enjoyed the second half of this book quite a bit. Um, it gets more into, like, practical... Well, I don't know if it ever really gets practical, right? Like, it's... it's The, the, the thing on the front cover is a theory of political organisation. Um, and the practical thing here is maybe, like, giving you a framework for thinking about political organisation much more realistically than we've been accustomed to thinking about it. Yeah, I think what you get to is a sort of perspective on political organization, um, but never anything concrete per se. Yeah. I think the the first half of the book was a lot of uh, analysis and description, and then this is a lot of, it gets more prescriptive with like, here here's a bag of concepts that you can use to think about this stuff. Um the first bag of concepts we get is in Chapter 5, Elements for a Theory of Organization, Part 1, Ecology, Distributed Leadership, Organizing Cores, Vanguard Function, and Diffuse Control. Um, the opening kind of section here really kind of starts from the uh, the spread of like the network paradigm over the last couple of decades, um, where... You know, a political organization has started to like borrow the concepts of networks from um, ecology and biology and computing and math and all this kind of stuff, right? That um, ev- everything is a distributed network. It's um, you know we we sort of think of things in terms of these network structures. Um, but one of the, one of the kind of big problems, well, there's a lot of problems the author points out here, and one is kind of that like this concept isn't applied fully. You know, like. Um, because because the, the the network paradigm kind of gave a lot of wind to them the the horizontalists you know p- painting and kind of caricatures here like um you know one of the the parts of the title of the book right that you know it was kind of assumed that like networks would give you horizontality this wonderful kind of like flash diffuse kind of um uh well I was going to say control structure but really kind of lack of control structure um but no, that's not how networks actually work, right? Like anyone who's studied networks at all knows that they're lumpy by nature, right? They're not horizontal, they're not flat. Um, It's just not the fucking case. Like, why is it that people thought this was going to be this way? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's because there is a, there is a sort of mental image with networks of, their extensiveness and also the sort of ease of entry or enrollment. Um, But what people don't take into account when they uh, equate networks and uh, democracy um, as being the same thing uh, is that network effects exist? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Uh, preferential attachment, you know. <laughs> yeah. So just just to explain this uh, for, I guess, the listeners, the the, the point here is that um, within networks, you tend to have nodes that um, people attach to preferentially. Um, and then their power within the network sort of grows exponentially, right? 
Um, there are, you know, the sort of like first mover effects that can happen. Uh, you know, people can be, uh, ex exceptionally, uh, charismatic. Um, they can start in positions that are privileged in terms of resources or their network attachments. Um, they can be in the right place at the right time. Um, and also, uh, they can have broker positions, um, where they have a privileged location between two different, um, groups within a broader network. Um, so yeah, uh, these are, these essentially create like a power law distribution in the connectedness of, uh, certain nodes. Um, where things start to clump up around uh, these very highly connected hubs. Um, and uh, then you have a long tail of uh, less and less uh, connected nodes within the network um, that go off from there. It's been interesting to see that thing play out again in real time recently in the last couple of years with like Mastodon, right? Where... It has that power law distribution of like size of servers where and then like people who come onto the network like they they, they exhibit like again of course they fucking do because it's a well-studied phenomenon they exhibit that property of like preferential attachment where people prefer to join larger servers rather than smaller ones because why wouldn't you you know unless you have some other particular reason to prefer the tiny ones so it's this massive power law thing where you know some some servers servers are absolutely colossal and then and, and very highly connected, and then there's a steep drop-off and a very long tail of tiny, kind of basically irrelevant, like, nodes. Yes, uh, exactly. So this is a really good example because the Mastodon uh, protocol um, itself and the software that's associated with it is totally indifferent as to which uh, server you choose to affiliate yourself with. And just through the properties of networks, um, this has led to a massively clumped up uh, tiny number of mega nodes uh, or hubs, and then um, and then a, a long tail of, of essentially irrelevant ones. Um, yeah, um, I think in the in the political context, I think there's another. Well, I mean, it's it's spelled out here, but there's another kind of um, factor at work that, like, there was a kind of artificial distinction drawn between, like, you know, networks as this like natural free range kind of phenomenon, right? That's that's the way things naturally supposed to be, and then, you know. Well, there's there's those unions and those parties, you know, they're artificial, they're, you know, full of additives. Right, organizations. Organizations, they're full of additives and preservatives, they're not networks at all, you know, and it's like this very weird artificial, like, distinction between nature and artifice. Um, whereas if you generalize the concept of networks, that looks ridiculous, because, like, of course the parties and the unions are networks internally as well, right? Like, why, why, if, if networks are natural, then nature is everywhere, right? Like, why wouldn't it be... I don't know, you can't draw an arbitrary distinction like that. Um, yes, I think we, we talked about this a little, a little bit in our last recording about, like, um, what was it now, that uh, you can have networks within organizations and antagonisms within organizations, but that does not preclude there being... Um, sort of these cores of potestas or cores of institutional power that override opposition, right? 
Um, both things are true. Uh, and this is something that like a lot of theory has really struggled to get its head around. Like, um, you know, sort of this idea that like, I remember this being a thing in international relations theory and organizational theory when I was first getting into university, which was like so long ago, like 2005. Um, and just that sort of perspective that like, oh no, like you need to look inside the organization and then you're going to see like all of this like resistance and internal diversity and yada, yada, yada. It's like, yeah, like that stuff is true, but it's also true that, that uh, certain nodes within the network are structurally empowered and tend to get their way. <laughs> yeah, totally. um, and like, the, the state is a network too, right? You know, and so, but that, that means that networks don't have any political content. Like the, the concept of network doesn't have political content to it, which really, really takes the wind out of the sails of the horizontalists here, right? Um, and I think one of the points that the author raises is that like, uh, one of the mistakes of the horizontalists was to re rely on this assumption that like the natural dynamics of networks would carry the day for their political project. But it's not true, right? And like, in fact, the natural dynamics of networks tend towards hierarchy and clumpiness. If you want to not have hierarchy and clumpiness, you have to organize against the natural tendencies of networks, right? And this is where this is where the hands off the steering wheel approach of the horizontalists really falls apart. Because like, to actually get to actually get what you want, you'd need to do the thing that's opposite what you say you need to do, right? It all fall. It, it's it, it's all kind of ridiculous at that point, right? Like if you if you want if you want to steer against this clumpiness and and aggregation of power, you need to like actively intervene against it, not just rely on nature to play out. Yeah. So. This is uh, this is an interesting point, right? Because um, the horizontalists have sort of traditionally done this in some ways, um, but what Nunes points out is that this kind of manifests as a sort of like bad faith, where you advocate for networks, but then also disavow the realities of networks and exist in this constant state of guilt of your network not living up to the putative ideals of what a network should be. So then you're, you're, you're constantly, it's this sort of, um, you know, it's sort of like Nietzsche's uh, analysis of Christianity, right? Is like, you're constantly existing in a state of simultaneous um, hatred of the other and also hatred of yourself. Um, and it's like it's like through that sort of self-flagellation that you maintain your political activity. Uh, and and the, the, it's the sort of like, I, I forget exactly what Nietzsche uh, calls it, but it, it's this kind of like anti- anti-life mentality you know it's a sort of it's a sort of like nihilism of like i i always want to be this thing that cannot exist and so i'm going to negate all of existence in order to argue this point um you can never 
you can never actually manifest what it is that you say your politics are about because it's it's like fundamentally impossible yeah and that's um that's this that's the thing that uh, the author is steering pretty hard against right like steering more towards like let's be kind of realistic about what we can do and like what what kind of pathways our radicalism can take rather than kind of shooting for uh, like in the, the Nietzschean sense they're shooting for the moon realizing you can't possibly do it and then just flipping over into negation and it's like well fuck it sour grapes um you know none of the shit is possible anyway right um, yeah, but then you you keep doing it, right? Is the thing you, you keep doing it anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's like oh, but we have to do it again, or we just need to we just need to reform the organization, or you know, like or uh, like Nunes says, um, organizations that 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 sort of never get off the ground because this impulse towards uh, perfect network horizontality is like so self-sabotaging that they just get into paralysis by through critiquing their own existence continuously. Exactly. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'll just read this section because I think it exactly covers what I was describing. Uh, so Nunes writes, horizontalism sets standards that are literally impossible to live up to. This is the source of the combination of anxiety, paralysis and disavowal one often finds in self-described horizontal spaces. Disavowal, for starters, of their very condition of existence, the act of foundation that shapes them in ways that become effectively unquestionable, not least as non-horizontalists like to complain, the choice for consensus over majority rule. Uh, but also, but disavowal also of the fact that the limits encountered in practice are either hidden behind an uncritical imaginary representation of what actually goes on or treated as contingent and temporary rather than necessary and constitutive. Um, so, yeah, it's just I think that says it very well in terms of like you can't be effective if you live in a state of disavowal of your own existence. Right, totally right. And the the, the the step towards getting over that disavowal is kind of seeing the, the seeing the movement or the kind of political landscape as an ecology um, of overlapping and disparate forces um, that are kind of in in constant dynamic sort of um, interaction, right? And you're that's the terrain you're operating on, like, and you, you can't just rely on the fact that it is a network to carry the day for your political project. You have to actually organize your political project on that terrain. Um, uh, one of the examples he points to fairly early here of like these kind of like um, interacting forces is like the the sort of radical and moderate versions of a position that you'll get. Um, I think the example he points to is like Martin Luther King and uh, Malcolm X, right? Like kind of where the kind of movement overall benefited from uh, like having a sort of split that like a, a kind of cell division in which the 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 um, the, the differentiation kind of increases the variety of the of the ecosystem overall and each each side is able to kind of like critique and kind of um, position themselves against the others that the moderates can kind of say well and again painting in very broad strokes here but the, the moderates can say well hey look we're nicer than, the, than those radicals and the radicals can also gain steam steam off the back of the moderates and it's a it can be a, virtu a virtuous spiral that helps both positions out and in in the case of both of those, um, you know, leaders of the civil rights movement, they were like able to point at each other and go, yeah, I'm kind of glad that guy's around, <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah. 
That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and that's that's a like seeing it as an ecology in that sense is a healthier sort of position rather than saying, well, we have to stake our position in one or two, one or the other of these, these camps, right? Like there's the the one true way, you know, the one true position, and we're opposed to this other thing. You know, that's that's kind of silly. Yes. Yeah. I think um, uh, the the ecology perspective is 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 useful because it sort of says that ecologies are not organizations. Um, they're also not uh, the sort of network paradigm that the horizontalists point to. Um, they have hierarchies within them. They have no sort of um, deliberate logic of organization. Um, they don't exhibit uh, strategic behavior. Um but they do contain within them organizations that can exhibit strategic behavior and move the ecology uh, or even individuals who can do so, right? So um, it's like the distinction between organization and ecology, I think, is a quite a useful analytical one. And it's, you know, we were sort of talking in the green room about this, that like, organizations are things that you could apply like the logic of the VSM to, but you can't apply that to um, uh, ecologies because um, they don't have any kind of like homeostatic self-conception, right? They don't, they don't conceive of themselves as organisms or things that need to survive. They just exist in the moment um, and, and have complex interactions within themselves. Um, so they can be sort of accidentally self-stabilizing, um, according to the logics that operate in them and the kinds of, um, interactions between organizations and individuals that happen in them. Uh, but they have no, um, inherent, uh, capacity to deliberate and make forward thinking adjustments, which is why uh, actually there's a there's a passage in Brain of the Firm that uh, Stafford Beer says he didn't use ecologies as the basis for the BSM and instead cho chose the human body. Um, they just, just don't have that kind of um, uh, system three, four, five capacity. Yeah, ecologies are kind of indifferent to outcomes. Like it's. Um... Like within an ecology, a wolf or a deer like is very concerned with its own survival. Like it wants to maintain its blood volume at a certain level. You know, it wants to maintain its own survival. But the ecology of the the ratio of wolves to deer it is absolutely indifferent. It doesn't give a fuck if like the wolves eat all the deer or if the wolves starve to death. Um, there's no goal directed behavior there in the same way that you have for the organisms. It's it's more like a kind of cellular automata where like the only thing that's ever really relevant is the current frame and the kind of ongoing sort of algorithmic process by which frames develop over time. Um, yeah, and so this isn't um, to discount the sort of research that's happening about the intelligence of plants and fungi um, and their their symbiotic relationships, their ability to communicate with each other, allocate resources, et cetera, et cetera. Like that all happens within ecology, but uh, I think in this uh, framing, 
the way you would think about that is that those are organizations within ecologies as opposed to being uh, simply ecologies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there, there might well be a gradient between the two, like there's you know, more and less organized sort of things. But um, yeah, it, it's in general a mistake to project organization onto an ecology as if it was a fully organized thing. Yes, yes. Um, uh, there's there's also um, a point about leadership that's brought up in this section, right? Um, what is leadership and what is distributed leadership? So I think that, uh, you know, the there's one idea that's brought up here, which is the idea of the pack. Um, uh, uh, so describes as, uh, Anunis describes it as, though packs lack a fixed structure and a leader, there is no more equality or any less hierarchy in packs than in masses, but they are of a different kind. The leadership function is never fully stabilized in the hands of any individual concentrated in a position or formalized into a selection procedure. At the limit, it is indistinguishable from the role played by the member on the edge of the pack. It's cutting edge of deterritorialization in the sort of Deleuzian sense. Um, when it is capable of steering the group's course at any given moment, pulling it in a new direction, changing its shape and structure as it goes. This does not mean that the leadership function has ceased to exist, but rather that instead of being fixed, it circulates. And then later on, uh, Nunes writes that, um, you know, contrary to the horizontalists with this idea of leaderlessness, um, they, they, uh, he, he says that the pack is not leaderless, but leaderful. Yeah, it's a plurality of leaders, right? Yes. Um, it's, it's what he calls distributed leadership. Um, and, uh, and then says that, that leadership um, is, in his sense, uh, something quite different from occupying a position in a hierarchy let alone domination or abuse of power. The minimal concept of leadership implied here supposes that it is an event at its most fundamental. To lead means nothing more than to be followed. That is, to orient attention and action in a certain direction, to introduce a polarization in the environment that was not there before, to produce a modulation of collective behavior that propagates across a group a network or an ecology as it is adopted and or adapted by others, triggering other transformations as it moves along. In network parlance, it amounts to initiating a process of diffusion. Um, so that's what leadership means for Nunes. It's not the leadership. This is a, a very crucial distinction that he develops later in the book, but um it's not the leadership position, it's the leadership function. And yeah, it, it's, it's crucial that like that can come from anywhere. It, it's, uh, it, 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 again, it's this, it's just like, um, you know, take, taking the network metaphor more honestly, like it, it can come from anywhere in the network, but it's much more likely to come from these clumps and clusters, right? Like that. And that's, that's, that's how you get to the kind of concept of an organizing core that like you're in a, in a network, in a real network, you're going to see these kind of uneven distributions of, even if you're trying to not have uneven distributions of power, you're still definitely going to have an uneven distribution of initiative. Um, that's just how things fucking play out, right? 
Yeah, it, uh, you know, he, he writes, if individuals are not automata responding uniformly and on block to a change in their environment, a change in collective behavior never takes place all at once, but must start from one or more points. Right. It, it, it has to, like, a, a change has to be initiated somewhere and then has to be, has to propagate by mimetic contagion um, and has to be imitated. Um, that kind of, like, that, 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 that propagation is going to be modulated by the sort of relative prestige of whoever's taking the initiative or whatever, like that. It's a trusted sort of person who's known to do good work or whatever, you know, it's like, those are just going to be factors. Yes, there's... There's a point that um, he raises at some point in here that that the first person to to initiate a change, the first person to uh, play that leadership role or enact that leadership function uh, is not at all necessarily the person who is going to continue to do so. Um, So you can definitely have somebody that starts something and remains completely anonymous and then the person who is well positioned within the network is highly co- connected as a as a hub um, actually inherits that initiative and and keeps it going and 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 gets the attention and legitimacy that uh, goes with that and kind of ideally what ha- what would happen is that like um the the initiative kind of forms a feedback loop that's somewhat self-sustaining and you get like an organizing core emerging naturally to like um, keep the idea going to provide resources and, you know, aptitudes and, you know, little bits of specialization and like connectivity within the network. Um, you're, you're kind of actually hoping for these lumps to form, um, to enable the, the further propagation of change. Yeah. 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 Um, so essentially the ideal, organization that is being brought up by Nunes here is this, this pack, right? Um, yeah, it says, uh, the less, uh, consolidated positions exist. However, the more the leadership function is free to circulate. That is the reality of the pack in which each individual is responding to modifications in a common environment rather than deliberating collectively or following a single leader. It is also what happens in an organizational ecology in which no center of power dominates all the rest. Even when several people come together to make a decision, it is still not the ecology as a whole that decides. Um, so essentially what what's uh, being said here is that like it isn't necessary to have an organizational ecology in which there is one party that has all the legitimacy of decision. Um, it is possible to have this kind of pack ecology where various organizations exist and exercise leadership at different points in time because leadership circulates. Um, and, and there doesn't need to be a final executive uh, node that decides for everyone and whose, whose word is final. 
right? Yeah, that's, that's super important. And it's like some of the groundwork is laid in an earlier section on how do, how does an ecology decide? And like uh, a lot of this is about kind of like leadership and its legitimacy that like, again, painting and caricatures here, like the, the verticalists have a kind of certain idea of like where leadership comes, comes from and what its validity is. Um, you know, it, it comes from the top or whatever. And the, the people at the top have the, the mandate of the proletariat or whatever, this kind of shit, you know, um, that's where that's where the validity comes from. Yeah, it's like. It's like the model of the common turn, right? That the various communist parties had to be subordinate to the strategic decision-making of the common turn. And uh, that didn't work very well. No. And then the the horizontalists have a different kind of notion of like kind of expansive indefinite inclusion like that we um we're gonna we're gonna do the the council of councils we're gonna do the square of squares whatever and we're gonna do the or the, or the, the, the like the the meetings the general assemblies right we're gonna have the assembly of assembly of assemblies and everyone's gonna be included and it's kind of always waiting for a kind of perfectly horizontal diffuse sovereign to just arrive from out of nowhere and that will validate the decision um both of these are fantastical kind of notions like of, of validity and what kind of what, what actually happens in these ecologies is as you said that it's like it's just a, it's a network of many forces interplaying and many little organizations and what happens is one you know an organizing core takes the initiative and does something and then that the validity of that action is backdated afterwards it's like judged to be have been a good move or not there's no there's no way you could ever get to global consensus by either having a sort of like um you know uh, like the, the the parity being equivalent to the to the ecology and like the parity will rubber stamp the the activity before it happens that's not going to happen nor is it ever going to be that you'll get the the grand consensus of everyone coordinating to validate a decision that's neither of those are going to happen it's only going to be that like uh, an initiative is either validated or not in play yeah and, and i mean um yeah so the the, the point here is that while ecologies cannot deliberate and decide strategically, they can behave strategically because there are nodes within the ecology that exercise the leadership function and initiate a diffusion of behavior that is strategically motivated. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's good stuff, right? And it kind of it cuts through a lot of stuff we've um, we've kind of dealt with on the show before. But I guess it's it's just questions that have been raised by that of like like you, you might ask like how do you how do you scale up the VSM to cover the the entire kind of ecology of of um of the the, the, the movement? And it's like well you, you kind of don't really like that's that's the answer you know um how, and even just like a lot of the stuff you get on the left of like how how do you build the party you know how do you, how do you scale up the party to cover everything? And it's again the answer is you kind of don't right. Um, yes. Yeah. Like, um, I think it's a little bit later in the, in the book here, but, um, uh, Nunes brings up this idea of sort of, you know, platform politics, um, and these, these, uh, these, these political platforms that are kind of based on the, the IT platform idea, um, and which obviously make use of platforms, um, in the, the, the like technical sense. Um, and they are kind of the limit of what kinds of organizations you could apply the BSM to, right? Because 
they have a self-conception as a platform, as a space for uh, uh, certain types of people and organizations to act. Um, and they have an understanding of who their membership is and the membership has an understanding of what role the uh, platform is providing for them. Um, and so there is that, that sort of mutual uh, recognition and self-conception that allows for organizational closure. Uh, but the platform is very, very hands-off as to what is actually done with the resources it provides. Um, and then if you go beyond that, you're sort of getting to uh, beyond like the minimal sort of organization towards an ecology in which you can't apply the VSM because it doesn't have uh, the, the, the systems three, four, and five functions. They are just, uh, there's no self-conception as an organization with a membership and 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 a, a homeostatic uh, imperative, right? Yeah, I mean, like like so much of the rest of the book, that's like there there is a spectrum between these things. It's just that like, um, yeah, there, there there's a kind of spectrum between like deliberate versus kind of emergent organization. Like everything is organized ultimately, but like you you can kind of identify points along the gradient at which things become more and less true, and like that maybe it's generally like. It's generally a mistake to project organization in the kind of organism sense, like the um, goal-seeking thing. Projecting that onto an ecology is generally a mistake. Um, there's there's a, there's somewhere along that continuum that you can identify as the point at which that stops being true. Yeah, it's just in, in the political sense, this this sort of idea of a political platform seems to be the, the extreme limit case. Um, it's it's not quite a pack, right? Like it is. Um, it still has some kind of centrality, some kind of, of notion of uh, self-recognition and, um, and uh, 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 homeostasis, uh, whereas the, the pack is beyond that in terms of its diffusion. Um, yeah. Um, I think one of the maybe the last points from this section is that, like, and maybe it's a bit of a summary, that, like, if... If self-organized networks are lumpy by nature, like they're asymmetrical, then you can kind of expect them to have this uneven distribution of power, um, be, be, power in the sense of like effectiveness and doing things because of this distributed leadership. Um, that's just something you can expect. And it's a it's a pharmacon again, like it's a, both a cure and a poison. Like this is just this is just how things work. But you should, probably should be on guard against too much concentration of power. Um, but like you shouldn't expect it to be perfectly diffuse. Like that's just not how anything works in the world. Uh, no, it, it, it isn't. Uh, even in space, right? Like you look at uh, uh, deep space, um, you, you, you don't have a perfectly diffuse distribution. Um, you have stars and gravity wells and uh, nebula and all kinds of... Uh, areas where space is thinner or thicker in terms of its sort of like, you know, gravitational content, right? Yeah. Um, and like, well, we will eventually have a perfectly diffuse universe and everything will be dead. Um, but, you know, until then, it's very lumpy. Well, it's, it's only like energetically, right? <laughs> yeah. I guess. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Um, 
but like this this dynamic unevenness is a virtue actually like that's how work happens right like even yeah i mean thermodynamics right the only reason anything is possible in this universe is because of the uneven distribution of of, of energy and work and power um yeah you, you you sort of have the um the two extremes right of of the pre-big bang where everything is a singularity and undifferentiated within itself so there is nothing happening because everything is self-identical. Um, and then you have the, the, the heat death scenario where everything is maximally uh, diffused and nothing has the potential to enact any change on anything else because it is all exactly equal, right? Uh, it's just it's just extensive uh, unity as opposed to like maximally intensive unity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, shall we get on to vanguards and vanguardism? Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess, I mean, like, uh, this This is another another trick he's pulling. Like, it's, it's the same thing again of, like, just, just distinguishing, like, the vanguard position from the vanguard function. Um, that the, the vanguard is a kind of dirty word at this point because of trots and fucking Leninists, um, you know, um, with good reason, because it's a very haughty sort of... Um, you know, self-aggrandizing kind of uh, kind of word that's kind of trotted out by those folks. Um, yeah, I mean, essentially, the thing about the vanguard in that sense is that there is a um, equation between the vanguard and the party, and especially the party leadership, right? That uh, that that Leninist states, uh, you know, constitutionally enshrine this idea of the leading role of the party, right? And um, you know, we see this to con- uh, continue to be very much the core of Leninist ideology in China, for example, right? Um, that the leading role of the party is utterly sacrosanct, um, and it is in implicit in that idea is that, or even explicit in that idea is that that the vanguard role is always held by the party because the party has a privileged understanding of reality and the future and, and, and history. Um, and so they always know where the proletariat needs to go in order to achieve its historical destiny. Um, or, or, or in the case of China, it's more properly speaking, I guess the 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 nation needs to right, um, and 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 any kind of challenge of that vanguard role is approached with extreme hostility because it is not only threatening to those in power but also anathema to the general conception of the world that is implied in that. Uh, Leninist view. Um, so yeah, that's, that's why we have this very, uh, <laughs> this very hostile, uh, and negative association with the idea of the vanguard. Um, yeah. Um, 
but I mean, and it's also like that 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 kind of concept of the vanguard is a, is fairly different from Marx's kind of you know conception of like the vanguard is like the cutting edge of the movement itself, right? Like that, it's not necessarily an elite position. It becomes an elite position with official Marxism, but um, we can rescue the concept, right? Instead of doing vanguard positions, we can do vanguard function as a relational thing. That like, I mean, even in a military sense, like the vanguard just is whatever part of the force happens to be closest to the enemy at this given time? Yes. Um, yeah, it says, uh, uh, in the military context from which the metaphor originates, a vanguard is a vanguard only if there is something else that follows and eventually fuses with it. It is, an, it is a, quote, advanced detachment, but only temporarily. Unlike an elite, which seeks to remain in place, a vanguard should, by definition, exist in order to abolish itself. Exactly, right? It's temporal, it's relational, it's situational. Um, so we don't need to abandon the concept of a vanguard or like what? Like, I think it's a useful concept to be able to say, where's the cutting edge right now? Like, what's the thing that's closest um, to the, the coal face or closest to the enemy or whatever. Um, but it, it can't be a fucking elite bureaucracy. <laughs> that can't be the fucking vanguard. Um, yeah, yeah, because of, like, all the reasons we described in, like, talking about the VSM, right? Um, it just cannot be the case, right? Like, they, you have this idea in the VSM that, like, literally the leadership, the leadership function circulates and that you should maximize the autonomy of these system ones. And the reason why is practical. It's because these organizations are the most efficacious, or sorry, these, the, these functions are the most efficacious on the world and also the most sensitive to what they're trying to do. Um, uh, and, and so to say that you need to have a um, insulated uh, bureaucratic elite uh, always uphold the vanguard function by force, right? Like to suppress any vanguardism outside of that core um, is only justifiable if you have a extremely elitist view of the world, right? Yeah, and I mean, I don't know, this, this is a half-formed thought that's just popping into my head right now, but maybe some examples you could use from today are kind of like uh, you know, the various kind of conflicts over bodily autonomy and, like, queer people and women and all this kind of stuff, that's, like, this big fucking battle that's going on in society right now. And, like, you've got, you've got plenty of people who look at the situation and very correctly and clearly identify that, like, the vanguard in, like, the clash between, you know, uh, freedom and emancipation versus reaction and fucking conservatism, the vanguard is at, like, the, the line of, like, you know, trans-liberation or whatever currently, whereas, you know, 10 or 15 years ago it was somewhere else, you know, and, like, back in the 80s it was, it was just gay and lesbian stuff, or, you know, that kind of thing, right? Like, they can identify a dynamic, changing, cutting edge that's, like, just, it moves around, and so they identify that, like, we should be putting some fucking effort into defending on that front right now, you know? But then... Conversely, you get a lot of folks who don't get that, who, like, kind of dig their fucking heels in as, and, you know, the stereotypical, like, uh, straight white gay man who's, like, pretty happy to have gotten his, his fill and isn't too fucking bothered about what's going on with anyone else, you know, and is, is more, like, less sensitive to that kind of, that, that kind of dynamic or, like, even the fact that, like, you can see how, 
the the clash over abortion access and the clash over like bodily autonomy for queer people are very much intertwined kind of problems and you know that 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 is a vanguard right that's a that's a sort of a, that's a that's a front line that's happening right now you know yes yes yeah and it, and it it is it is the case because of the sort of um conjunctural occurrences that led to um you know simultaneously uh trans people being um you know vilified dehumanized attacked and also at the same time uh cis women uh or people who are capable of birthing people, uh, humans uh they uh had their rights uh stripped away um and so the vanguard is exactly as it's described there in that military context that like it is on the front um as a result of where the front has moved right um and 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 it would seek to abolish itself in the sense that like it would seek to get mass support, change the circumstances, and, uh, you know, no longer need to be the vanguard. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I mean, like, seeing, seeing these things in these ecological and dynamic terms... Um, and these temporal terms can help us kind of like deal with the, I guess the, the shock some people have been dealing with around these topics of like, because I mean, again, painting in broad strokes, but like, you know, for a while, it seemed like that whole abortion access thing was kind of tidied away, right? Like, you know, there was, there was the women's movement, there was feminism, and then we got what we wanted. And then, you know, whatever, it's done. Great. Wonderful. We're not, we're not the front line anymore, except then suddenly everything turns back around and people who thought they wouldn't be on the front line again are exactly yes that's very scary right like and, and people have been kind of grappling with like i don't know again this kind of touches on stuff from the previous episode but like the linear conception of revolution or linear conception of progress it's like we we weren't supposed to get a rollback it, it looks like a rollback if you think about it in those kind of linear terms but if you see it in a dynamic three-dimensional kind of sense it's not that surprising that a given, you know, facet of the thing would be the front line for a moment, then not, and then be again the front line. Yes, 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 um, exactly. And and so it's the people who have been taken by surprise, um, they become part of the vanguard in the sense that, like, they are activated and animated to fight. Um, it's not so much that they've been flanked or blindsided that makes them the vanguard. It's when they actually, you know, fight. Uh, yeah. Um, and then, and then it's like, oh, actually, you know, if we think about this in military terms, it's like our force needs to reorient towards the vanguard and then reinforce them. Um, and, 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 and then there won't be a vanguard anymore in that place. Um, so yeah, this this is all useful stuff. I think it's it's a much more uh, it's much more accurate way of thinking about how these things actually work, right? Um, uh, yeah, and I, I think that um, it's also it's also useful in the sense that like it puts the priority on the initiative of the people at the front in terms of forming strategic thinking, right? Because they are they are the ones who are sort of activated as leaders um like in that leadership function as a matter of necessity 
um, due to circumstance. Um, and that also implies a kind of privileged priority, um, but it's not a permanent priority in terms of theorization and um, theorization and also uh, initiative, right? Like they, yeah, like it, it's not as though because at this moment, you know, uh, the abortion debate is a key critical political battleground that the thinking that comes out of this has to be privileged for the next hundred years. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of why, I mean, again, it helps us to understand more stuff that like is a little bit harder to understand without that, that like, you know, um, I don't know, like, the, the the straight boys get a bit upset when they're told to sit down and shut the fuck up and listen to women and listen to queer people, but that's why they're being asked to fucking listen, is that those are the people who happen to be on the front line right now, that's where the real fight is. If, you know, God forbid, if the fucking straight boys ever get victimized in the same way, we'll listen to them, <laughs> you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and then it's like they wouldn't, like, in that... You know, it's kind of like in that circumstance, it's doubtful they would even be conceptualized in the same way, you know? Right. But if, you know, it's like temporally, if things shift around that way, yeah, they'll they'll be they'll get the same thing. But like that it's it's like you're you're not being asked to listen and like pay attention for just like on ontological reasons or something like a metaphysical thing. It's that like in this struggle struggle temporally, this is where the this is where the front line is, and these are the people you should be listening to for that reason. Yeah. Yeah, there's a line later in the book where Nunes says that the left has been guilty of mistaking identity for tactics. Um, and, and I think that kind of goes both ways, right? Is it's, you know, there is the sort of, um, in, in, um, the way in which manifesting my identity or actualizing my identity as a oppressed person, um, can for some people seem to be the entirety of politics, right? Just to, just to, just to exist in the world is your politics, which, you know, has a certain degree of validity to it when a, the society around you is hostile, right? Because it, it does imply a certain amount of leadership to just, you know, be different um, and to be in the world. You're not, you know, not kill yourself, not flee, um, there's a, there's a kind of uh, defiance there. Right. But, um, on the other hand, uh, it's also not really sufficient because it doesn't imply anything about organization, right? It doesn't imply anything about actual tactics, but if you look at it from the sort of the flip side, um, you shouldn't, if you're say the, the, you know, the straight white boy, you shouldn't look at um, someone else's identity simply as being tactics, right? Like the mistake kind of goes both ways where it's like, oh, well, you're just doing your queer things, you know? Like why do you, like, you know, it's kind of like that, uh, the, the classic things about like, oh, why are you so dramatic about your <laughs> queerness? Like why, like why do you go through your life you know, being queer all the time and you got to get everybody else involved in being queer. It's like, like you're just doing the queer all the time and it's really just not necessary <laughs> because, you know, you're thinking about things from a tactical perspective 
from your privileged position, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's like, I, I'd never do that. I, I, I would never be so fucking foolish as to go around and act that way, you know, like, and, and draw trouble on myself, you know? So, like, why do you do it? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, or just like, oh, like, I have better things to worry about, you know, like that kind of mentality too, right? Like, I'm just living my life. I got my own problems. Why do I have to get involved in your shit kind of thing? Um, and, and, and all of that thinking is, yeah, sort of mistaking the, like, conflating the identity and the behavior as being exactly the same thing when there's actually a validity to the identity that goes beyond the tactics as well, right? Yeah. Um, I think the last section of this chapter is ecology against the state, in which uh, there's some talk about, like, um, I guess, various, like, societies and peoples that have been kind of identified, I guess, like, both historically and current, that where the sort of... um, the, the the leader's position is actually quite precarious. Like it's they it's it's like um they they can only lead with the goodwill of the the rest of the the, the group and it, they it, there's like a active intervention on part of the group to prevent the formation of a state to prevent institutionalization of power. Um, that the, the the chief is very aware that his position is quite fragile and precarious. He can't get away with much. Yes, uh, it's uh, very similar to like a, a good demonstration of this um, theory of society is um, actually the video game uh, The King of Dragons Pass, um, where uh, it's a it's a sort of narrative game, um, but it's also a strategy game, and it's it's essentially you are the chief of a tribe in this fantasy world, and. It, you have to sort of do the hard work of like horse trading and bargaining with the members of your tribe in order to make anything happen. And you're very much not in that position of like the God game or like the, the civilization, right. Where it's like, Oh, I am the eternal God King of this, of this nation. I do like whatever I say is law. It's like the exact opposite of that, where you are the leader, but you're also just like beset by uh, your obligations and limitations as a member of this tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a good example, right? Because like that's um, that's the it's the concept of diffuse control here. That like um, because it, it answers the question of how can uh, if if you are in a lumpy network, which you are anyway, right? Like but like you want to be able to maintain uh, enough egalitarianism, enough kind of like the right kind of non-hierarchy or whatever. Well, how do you go about doing that? And you, you need a lot of diffuse control from a, from below that puts pressure on the the central line, like the, the sort of lumps in the network. Um, and yeah, it's, it, and a big part of that is main, that those leadership positions need to, not not leadership positions, but like the f- leadership functions or like whoever has them needs to be precarious. Like it can't be allowed to become permanent. Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of saying like to the extent that there is a leadership position, which, you know, a chief, a chief is, um, it needs, there needs to be, uh, militant opposition to its consolidation so that the function and the position become identical to each other. Right. Um, that, that, uh, that you have that consolidation into Potestas where the leadership function is also exclusively held by the leadership position. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, 
multiple alternative nodes of power that can contest and like you know but i mean it can all be kind of formalized as well with like you know i mean just good stuff like accountability distribution distribution of authority amongst a couple of people rotating tasks so that you know um privilege doesn't accumulate um equal access to information and resources is called out as an especially important thing that like um elites can form just around just knowing things and knowing how to do things Oh, absolutely. That's like, that's like what we saw with um, reading Brain of the Firm, right? Where, you know, Beer talks about how the management strata and the engineers um, had a kind of organizational power uh, that the VSM in itself couldn't really address. And there had to be this kind of political activity, this all-sided political activity to actually make the revolution, to go beyond nationalization and reorganization towards, um, like, you know, material democracy, right? Um, and and, and that, that sort of, like, uh, circulation of the leadership function becoming more free as, to, as opposed to becoming uh, uh, consolidated in the hands of... Um, the educated um and 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 uh, connected yeah so i mean like you can think of it like as um it's a it's a kind of homeostat where the the target variable is like maintaining the freeness the free circulation of the leadership function and the kind of that you you kind of think up your interventions like how are you going to keep that moving um like multi-sided like mutual surveillance i guess or mutual kind of um vigilance uh, is one aspect of it um this kind of like formalized rotation of roles and formalized like um inst- inst- you, you can you can institutionalize things that prevent institutions from forming basically uh, which is quite fun yeah i mean it, it's like it's it's kind of a poor example but you can see like for example how in the chinese communist party there was the attempt to move towards a collegial collegial leadership uh arrangement um, and then a hard reaction in the opposite direction towards the consolidation of power, um, and and that uh, effort to have a collegial system uh, utterly falling apart. Um, but you can you can see how that like that tension really did play out organizationally within the party. It's just it went the it went the way of you know, complete tyranny, right? Yeah. Um, ah, sigh. You can't win them all. Sigh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not like, you know, uh, having a collegial communist party in itself would be uh, uh, a utopia. It, it, it's already pretty bad in the sense that the, the, the that sort of permanent leading role of the party was still jealously held it's just it would be like a minimum improvement over complete centralization. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, you can see the example in the negative, I guess, of like what could have what could have been. Um, yeah, what could have happened? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's move on to chapter six: elements for theory of organizing, part two: uh, platforms, diversity of strategies, and parodies. Um, first part of this is about is about the platforms right that like um especially in the kind of wake of the collapse of mass organization um there's been a kind of diffusion i guess like of like um 
like a breakdown into functions, like it, it kind of turns out that like some of the f- functions that were performed by the mass organizations are just as easily performed by by a kind of ecology of, of small organizations or whatever. Um, we're still kind of left with a bit of a question of like which bits are still essential. And that's kind of why the question of the parity is still around um, and still kind of live. But um, a lot of this chapter then deals with kind of like just kind of picking apart some of these functions and like kind of arguing like, well, actually, no, I mean, you don't need, you don't need the, the parity to do this function. Uh, you, what you need, what you need is the function itself. Um, yeah. And there's, uh, there's some really good points made here. Um, so for example, Nunes writes, uh, while network movements are in principle capable of innovating faster, much of that innovation might become stuck in the short term proliferating quick responses that do not cohere into a strategy or fail to scale up to the size that would be that would make them effective besides because much of their fragile collective identity is constituted around a set of initial tactics and practices such as counter summits square occupations or general assemblies it is harder for them to agree on new tactics once police and state responses evolve It is likely that longer-term thinking requires a degree of continuity over time that is only possible once organizing cores have crossed a certain threshold of stabilization. Um, So, you know, it's to say that, like, yeah, like, you can have these kinds of provisional organizations, temporary organizations, networked organizations that can perform some of the things that uh, uh, Mass Party historically did. Um, but they also have their own limitations, um, especially if they are conceived or if they center around, uh, something very fixed, um, and, and, and they thereby lose, uh, where they, they sort of get into a, um, a double bind of on the one hand, they can have coherence, and on the other hand, they can have flexibility, and they can't have anything in between, right? Yeah, and a lot of what, what's going on here is like, kind of like, how do you scale up from there? Like, like for, how do you scale up from the organizing core, like, and kind of um, propagate further through the network? Um, he actually kind of points to like we can probably draw some lessons from like uh, far right ecologies, in, which seem to have been recently quite successful in um, kind of like bridging the, the gap in scales between like, you know, garden variety bigots and like organized, um, organized very large movements. Um, yes. Uh, I mean, like I kind of, I, I'm always hesitant to endorse this sort of argument because it does seem, it seems to me to always be susceptible to that problem of like people on the left, not actually being on the right and understanding the strategic and tactical and organizational difficulties that people on the right are encountering and only seeing, only seeing the successes or seeing it from the outside. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can kind of see how, um, there is a sort of middle ground type of organization that was successful in, um, uh, pushing like, for instance, the Republican Party far to the right of where it was at the turn of the century, right? Um, and 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 you know those are undeniably successes for them, and so they're probably worth studying. Uh, but the other thing that uh, Nunes brings up is that um, 
the well, we'll get into this in the chapter on populism, but essentially, it the the models might not really be transferable because they actually appeal to quite different demographics and have uh, sort of inherent dynamics that don't really transfer over. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the first things that gets brought up here is like the, the notion of like the platform and like, you know, platform politics has been a kind of thing recently. Um, but kind of like the, 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 the concept of platform here is like whatever creates the coordinations for open collaboration and like scaling up in an ecosystem. Um, providing, you know, like it, it, it is a sort of like provides like a notional objective, provides some protocols for interacting and provides some resources. And like it's, it's borrowing from like, you know, digital platforms as a concept there. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and Nunes sort of says that, like, um, the the action of platform politics sort of predates uh, the term being coined um, because it, it wasn't really a term that was used very much, say, during the Occupy movement. Um, but it's still the Occupy movement still uh, exhibited some of those behaviors because it was actually interacting with and organizing through, um, like, IT platforms, right? Yeah. Um, there's some kind of notions here of, like, this being a kind of... Uh, it's it's a sort of a mix of, like, an open and closed sort of process, right? Like, it's... Um, the, the platform is not, like, dictating the outcome or dictating the kind of direction of development from above, like, uh, like the, 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 the old parties or anything. It's just kind of, like... Hey, here is um, I don't know. Like, what are good examples here? Like, I don't know the stop the stop oil kind of people, the e extinction rebellion, the recent stuff in the UK over like don't pay your bills and shit like that. It's like here's the, here's the general objective. Here's the basic code of this thing. Here's some resources. Here's some ways to coordinate. Play the tape forward. Like, let's 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 go and see. Like, it's a kind of slightly constraining the space of possibilities in order to get people like attached and involved but like leaving the process very open so it's not like putting together a program or something like that's going to be enacted by the masses yeah it sort of um provides some minimal uh coordination and communication function and then some kind of like um educational function as well in terms of um providing sort of a toolkit of behaviors that can be used for activism towards the general end of the platform, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and kind of the reason this is being pitched is that like a platform logic can be a kind of new approach to leadership, right? Where the, the old parties and whatever unions and stuff had this kind of representative sort of thing where like the leadership represents a mass will that just exists, right? Like, the proletariat has a historical mission, the proletariat has a will, I'm going to represent that will, and we're just going to go from there. Whereas, like, a platform logic would be more about, like, a process of discovering and clarifying mass will, like, collaboratively, as an open process, not presuming to represent what is already there. Yes, yeah. Uh, so, for example, uh, uh, Nunes writes... Um, the platform limits but does not control, and the emphasis is more on the outcomes than on who the agent of that outcome is. The object of imitation is not so much the original organizing core, which might even stay hidden, but the initiative itself. 
whose identity as a whole can be transformed by what others make of it. Although the degree of openness may vary, platform logic supposes and exploits the possibility of overflow. It gambles on the excess of novelty over pre-existing identities. Um, the modulation introduced into the ecology can implicate disparate individuals and create the conditions for a shared identity between them and of effects over causes. Its consequences cannot be fully predicted or controlled. Um, in that sense, it is clearly not just a response to available technological affordances, but also to a situation in which there is little pre-existing organization to count on, and the first imperative is simply to bring people together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's almost like a kind of concept of like a chemical process or, or an evolutionary process where you, you, you can introduce materials and conditions to try to stimulate a process like crystal formation or something, and then ideally it keep it just gets going and like you, you you can't dictate the shape of a crystal beforehand you can kind of just discover what it's going to be after it crystallizes right yeah and it, and it gives some sort of like minimal identity to the different groups that participate in the platform right um like that that you know oh they're um say um uh like the uh indignados right um, that, that was an example that was used. Um, it's like, well, there's lots of organizations in there with their own little identities, but they, they have this kind of vague, maximally open identity that they all share as members of this platform. Yeah. Um, I, I like this. I like, I like the kind of, um, the, the, the kind of notion of the open process of discovery, right? Like that you kind of have, you have some minimal sort of commitments and then you kind of play the tape forward and discover what's going to happen. Because um, it's sort of uh, like how, the big question of like, how does, how does the multitude strategize? Well, it does it in this, if, if, if it ever does it at all, it does it in this kind of discovery process, right? Like of like figuring out what people want, figuring out what kind of gambles they want to take on strategies um, and yeah, I, I think the point that the, the, the lying or the point that Nunes brings up is that the multitude never strategizes, but it can enact strategic or it can, it can act strategically because of internal diffusion of strategy. Right. Um, there's also there's also in the discussion about platforms just sort of the 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 kind of like limits or the the uh, contours of action and self organization that a platform can have right so there's a section in which Nunes talks about um, you know the the first uh, and fundamental uh, challenge for a platform is to uh, talk about the degree of coordination among local local groups, formalization or informality of procedures, and the structure adopted for decision making purposes. Um, so then, Nunes argues that uh, what matters is first that the choices are weighed according to variables such as the scope and complexity of the tasks expected from the platform, the size and level of involvement it requires to be effective, how permanent it is supposed to become, and so forth. So this is a point that Nunes develops uh, throughout this section of the book, but basically this idea that 
the more complex the aims of an organization are, the more organized or formalized it needs to become, right? Uh, uh, because um, essentially more complex tasks require more energy to uh, accomplish, and uh, therefore they need to um, have more organization, more coordination, more enrollment of people. Um, and, and, and more strategic thinking, right? Um, just, you know, if you think about that, like, oh, okay, the, the task is really complicated, then you're probably going to need to have a, uh, conception of your solution that is on the same order as the, <laughs> the, the, the problem you're confronting, right? Uh, yeah. Um, and then, uh, the second point was just that, yeah, like these crises over how the whole thing will be organized are inevitable. They can't be avoided. And so, you know, just in line with what he was previously saying, like, you need to accept this pharmacon of organization is also, it's like both enabling and also dangerous, right? And so um you need to go in with your eyes open about that, but also don't freak out when you encounter conflict over these things because they're inherent. This, this conflict is inherent to organization. Yeah, and it's and it's all trade offs, right? Like there isn't going to be a right or a wrong answer. It, it can only be you know a success or a failure in context like that. You steered one way or the other um, too hard. Yeah, there's no predetermined answer to these questions. It's actually determined by the tasks and environment that you're in um, is the key point. Yeah, I mean, like, the variables that are called out are interesting, right? So, like, um, you know, size and complexity of the goal. Um, also, like, level of involvement is an interesting one because, like, I mean, you think of the Bolshevik-Menshevik split as, like, being over, like, the degree of involvement of members, like, and... In context, one or either of those may have been the correct decision, but like it, it then gets generalized as like the Bolshevik model is the only model, right? Yes, yes, the only model, exactly. Um, and, and that's that's the point that he's arguing against, right? Is that that just because a model worked in a particular context, we cannot assume that it's universally applicable. Um, and we really should be more attentive to what we are actually trying to do in the here and now and what that implies about how we should be organized. Um, yeah. In the section titled Everything Has Failed, Just Think of the Possibilities, um, he kind of goes into like tearing down these kind of old old abstract debates over, like, picking the one and only strategy as, um, you know, all of this has fallen on its ass, but, like, we can ask ask ourselves what we can do from now on, right? Um, yeah, like, these these kind of huge limitations and failures of, um, of, of, like, doing these very abstract debates over strategy without having any of this concrete grounding that we've just been talking about, right? Like, um... We need to instead be kind of asking, like, what's feasible in these conditions? What what could we do that's durable? And, like, what are the actual strategic gambles we could take that move us closer to our goals? Um, and the, the fact that everything has failed actually opens up a lot of possibilities there because we can just kind of scrape aside a lot of the old debates and just, like, ground ourselves in reality today and go from there. 
Yeah, I think it's it's um, it, it is a positive condition for changing our behavior, even if um, it is disheartening and if it does sort of preclude some strategies. Um, it does also mean that there's still a lot of them out there to be tried in this kind of combinatorial and uh, context-sensitive way, right? Um, and a, a big thing that, that comes up in this uh, section is um, the theory of change, um, right? Um, so theory of change is like sort of this idea of like, well, how are we going to change things? Like, how does change happen and how are we going to do it? Um, so, uh, there's this point that he makes about the greater the scope of an initiative, the more developed its theory of change ought to be, the richer in hypotheses to be tested and predicted, um, and, uh, predicted means of testing them. Uh, only then can it offer potential collaborators a, quote, plausible promise that their participation can yield tangible results. Um, so if you don't have a sophisticated theory of change and you're talking about, I don't know, like um, reducing uh, global hydrocarbon emissions, um, you're not going to get very far, right? Like people aren't going to really listen to you because it's just clearly not up to the task. Um, but he goes on to say that the theory of change must be understood here not as a general notion of how social transformation happens, but quite the opposite. For a long time, the left has seemed to mistake identity for tactics, tactics for strategy, and strategy for an abstract theory of change. A purely theoretical domain concerned with the ideal form of social transformation. So in the, you know, the sort of VSM sense, it's like um, the... Uh, System four functions are taken over by system three, and the um, uh, it, and then also um, they are abstracted beyond any kind of usefulness. So you know, like uh, for example, uh, strategy for tactics, right? It's like, oh, um, how are we going to? abolish the state. Uh, we'll gather together in squares. Right? That's the sort of category mistake that's going on here, where you are substituting a tactic for a strategy. Um, and uh, then we have the strategy for an abstract theory of change. In terms of sort of like, why do we do that tactic? You appeal not to any kind of strategic consideration of where we are at, but instead an abstract theory of how society changes. Um, so the str strategy dimension is sort of doubly screwed um, in, in this in this way of doing things. Yeah, exactly right. And like and, and because of that we we can't even can't even get started, let alone like actually enact a strategy. Um, um, and this is kind of then pivoting towards like focusing on like what can we actually do, right? Like, um, 
That's the way he puts it here, quoting, uh, In short, an attempt to answer the question, our resources being what they are and the conjuncture being what it is, how do we get from where we are to where we want to be? Absent this, strategy becomes unmoored from clearly defined problems and is left to wander idly, hardening into dogma. Diversity of strategies is thus not simply a matter of theoretical pluralism, but of a plurality of concrete strategic wagers active at the same time. So I think that's that's the real kind of core here is that like, it's it's an experimental um, approach to strategy, right? Like we're gonna we're gonna put our, we're gonna put our bets on a couple of these strategic wagers. We're gonna see how they play out. See if they move the needle for us, yes or no. We're not gonna get bogged down in big abstract kind of discussions beforehand. Um, and yeah, like when you're putting down a strategic wager, kind of like you have to like clarify why it is you think it might actually work, and like. What, the, what what sort of parameters are fitting to like um like 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 why do you believe it'll work oh it's be, it's because it appeals to a certain kind of social base it because it appeals to a certain um like concrete struggle people have in their daily lives that's why they'll get on board with it and like oh and also yeah it 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 makes use of the resources we have um as opposed to the ones we don't right like that kind of thing um Rather than like starting from, well, like once we have control of the state, then yada, 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 we'll be able to do the revolutions. Like that's not a fucking strategic wager. That's a fantasy, right? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. And, and uh, he also points out that this sort of dogmatism, you know, again, it, it goes both ways in terms of the verticalists and the horizontalists, where the verticalists have the dogmatism of, you know, um, the Leninist party being the universal uh, vehicle and strategy, sorry, uh, method uh, through which revolution can be enacted everywhere for all time. Um, and then on the other hand, the horizontalists have the dogma uh, of um, the real communist um, revolution has never been tried. And therefore, my pet political theory of organization is invincible, right? So uh, he says that the problem here is not just assuming that the implementation of state-centered strategies was not always also imperfect and externally constrained, plagued with compromises and uh, workarounds. More importantly, it is supposing that because they were always suppressed neutralized or co-opted before they had a chance to develop, other alternatives were never tried. That conclusion only makes sense if we choose not to consider that floundering under external pressure is also the sign of an internal weakness, a lack of resistance before the world, or, which amounts to the same, an incapacity to overcome the world's resistance. So it, is, it isn't that, you know, this kind of... Um, it isn't that this kind of uh, ultra-left strategy or whatever, counselist strategy, anarcho-syndicalist strategy, has never been tried. Um, it, it's actually that it was suppressed before it rose to the level of being a sort of world historical uh, paradigm or... Um, uh, case that people, everybody thinks about and points to in the way that they think and point to the Bolsheviks party, right? Yeah, and I mean, it's like, there's a certain kind of romanticism to that or whatever, but it's kind of irrelevant, like that, like, if if your thing couldn't actually work, then it 
and what's what's there to say about it? Like it's it's almost like it's almost like saying that the dodo was the perfect bird, except for the fact that it got fucking wiped out. You know what I mean? Like, it, well, it clearly wasn't fucking perfect, then was it? You know? Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know? and and so and so what Nunes is trying to say is like, okay, let's stop fetishizing these models of organization. Um, and try to use a variety of organizational models that are uh, appropriate to our circumstances, um, according to the strategic assessments we make and the aims we have. Yeah, um, I guess that brings us on to like the the strategic assessments, right? That like, um, and like I think broadly, it's kind of put out there that um, a strategic wager wager is good if it is structurally significant. Um, it has base building potential and addresses familiar problems, right? So, um, some good examples that are brought up here are various movements of like, um, you know, like the debt collective in the US, um, equivalent, um, equivalent organizations and movements in, in Spain, right? Like that, you know, get, getting at like debt relief protection from, from evictions, you know, um, super relevant to people's actually lived problems, had pretty large base building potential and were structurally significant because they kind of struck at, like, the heart of contemporary capitalism, right? That, like, um, debt and debt servitude and, you know, property and such. Um, so it's it's that, it's a lovely kind of balance of the right things where, like, it's small enough that you can get, well, you can get started on small problems, right? Like, just go around talking to the people about the ways they're indebted. But you kind of have, like, the big the big goal in mind of just abolishing all debt, abolishing capital. It, it, bridges, it bridges beautifully from the small to the large. Um, and has in in this society has basically universal potential for base building. Yeah, it's a good strategic wager, you know. Yes, um, and this is probably like the most concrete thing that Nunes comes up with in the book um, is is to say like, you know, look at these sort of examples of like um, uh, use the example of uh, 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 the movie. Sorry, Movimento Passe Livre. Uh, so MPL, uh, it was a, a Brazilian um, movement for free public transportation uh, in 2013. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it combined a largely consensual immediate objective, fair reduction with a broader discussion about private involvement in the transport sector, signaling towards medium term targets, audits and contract renegotiations, free transport for some social sectors while continuing to make, quote, utopian demands, such as universal free transport financed by cutting profit margins and taxing big business and ultimately handing transport over to some kind of public common partnership. Um, and so, you know, he says, would transport alone be capable of producing this broader shift in society that we are looking for is like, you know, wanting to revolutionize society? Um, the question is beside the point. The wager was not that transport as an issue could single-handedly lead to systemic change, but that it had sufficient structural relevance and social appeal to function as a leverage point for broader social transformation. The idea was not that the MPL could promote systemic change on its own, but that it could help create conditions for other anti-systemic forces to exploit as much as it could take advantage of their actions. Theirs was a strategy that started from a position of partiality no issue, no agent, no strategy or tactic is ever likely to be enough. 
And in any case, there will always be other players in the field and accordingly presupposed a plurality of other strategies. So essentially, this is what you get when you look at uh, an ecology of organizing cores and a plurality of strategies that they imply, right? Is you're not trying to come up with the one cool trick that will uh, end capitalism forever and create a socialist utopia. You are trying to see where leverage points are that can shift the ecology in a generally favorable way for other organizations that are pursuing uh, parallel but complementary goals, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, um, and, and, and doing it over time, right. Like where like you can, you can have, you can have like quick wins that compound. Right. So I don't know in the transport thing, like getting, getting the city to freeze fares for a year can pivot into getting fare reductions can pivot into just free public transport. And that, that links up with housing and all kinds of other things. Right. Like, and it's, it's okay for you specifically to be working on this problem and not that problem because somebody else is working on the other one and you can co- collaborate with them, right? Um, it's like the the notion that you're ever going to have like... It, it's like th- these are really good concrete examples of like why starting from... Have, having your starting position be the historical mission of the proletariat or whatever is a kind of dead end because like it's not actionable and it's not like... There's nothing you can fucking do about it, right? Like it's... it's and it's too abstract. It's like... Um, and like if you're if you're searching around trying to find the biggest possible umbrella on, under which to fit everything to, as your beginning, it's just not going to work, right? But like beginning from these like very relevant, um, again structurally significant and relevant to people's lives, um, these problems like get, get going on us, like grab the shovel and start digging, um, and coordinate to make it resonate with other things, you know, as an ecology rather than trying to solve every problem at once. Yes. And, um, you know, the, the thing here is not a suggestion that we all need to go join NGOs and create like very specific little campaigns of change with, uh, no real broader conception of social transformation in mind. Um, it's that, um, you need to have organizations that are targeted towards real potentials that you perceive in your environment. And so it can actually be, um, you know, like, you know, there are circumstances where violent insurrection could, you know, by a, uh, by a, um, sort of blankest, uh, <laughs> uh, organization, um, it, it could actually be an appropriate, uh, response to the situation. Yeah. Um, I mean, never say never, right? You know? Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it's just <laughs> that, um, it has to actually be towards an end that has some potential uh, to be realized in society and which, which will, will resonate with people and mobilize them. Like, you know, um, what is it? The, um, I uh, think about, uh, how, what was it? Um, uh, Basque. Yeah. It was a, like, what was it? A Basque separatist organization that assassinated one of Franco's generals. And then that really helped lead to the revolution that overthrew him and brought democracy to Spain. Right. 
Like, it's not to say that that particular approach was inappropriate, but it was like, well, they recognized that there was a, a certain potential of weakening the regime and then opening the way for people who were proceeding uh, not through assassinations, but through other means of politics uh, towards a common goal. Um, so again, it's, it's, it's like, that's the plurality, right? It's not all, let's, let's all join an NGO about improving transportation. It, it, it's what is possible. How do you want to do it? What's appropriate? Yeah. Um, and, and like the, the reason these things are, are, are wagers is because you don't know how they're going to play out. Like those, the Basque separatists didn't necessarily know that it would contribute to the downfall of the regime, you know. But, like, what, what what then happened was, like, you know, they do it. And then a lot of people who wouldn't necessarily get their hands dirty in that way, they still go, ha, awesome. And, you know, it, it emboldens them in their own kind of initiatives, you know, and it, it, steam, it kind of builds momentum from there. But, like, it's not something you can guarantee is going to help. And the same way, like, you know, doing the, trying to get the city to freeze bus fares or whatever. You don't know that's gonna that's gonna like necessarily snowball into the revolution, but it, might, it could, you know, um, if you contribute. Um, that's the gamble. That's the wager. Well, that's it for this episode. Join us again next time when we will wrap up our discussion of neither vertical nor horizontal. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. You can find us on Facebook and all the podcast apps, so like, rate, and subscribe. If you'd like to support this show and get access to our community Discord, you can go to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit and give us a couple of bucks a month. Every contribution is greatly appreciated. This show is part of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast network and research collective. Go to emancipation.network and check out our sister shows such as Swampside Chats, From Alpha to Omega, Jumpsuit Utopia, and Mortal Science. They're excellent shows and excellent folks. Once again, thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this show, and we hope you'll join us again next time.